Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman, a practicing physician and CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast. Today I'm covering the news to know for the week of September 23rd. Going to be covering a variety of articles that came out of the October issue of Jamie really good issue. I typically find that issue to be very academic, but this time there's a lot of good practical advice that CMIOs definitely need to know. I'll just highlight a few of them. There was an opening article that the title is Need for Innovation in Electronic Health Record-Based Medication Alerts by Susan Bacon. And the author goes to describe on about five of the different studies that were published in this journal to, uh, that really highlight what people are doing with clinical decision support around medication alerts. As an example, the first article that she talks about is a systematic review of 39 studies where they found that they were looking at safety around alert fatigue and obviously they, they found that interruptive clinical decision support was the least accepted by the alert recipients, which we all intuitively know. They were also looking at the tailoring of the alerts to the role, pharmacist versus prescriber, and the authors concluded that improved clinical decision interaction design and role tailoring may reduce medication safety alert fatigue, which I think we've all found that that's not terribly brilliant news. Interesting to think about that prescriber versus pharmacist. Those of us who have to deal with leapfrog know that those alerts have to hit the prescriber. I've had interesting conversations with providers where they're telling me to not fire the alert to the pharmacist. They would rather personally get the alert because right there in their workflow they could fix the problem as opposed to later getting a phone call from the pharmacist that now they have to navigate back into the chart, reorient themselves, and make the change. So I think it depends on the severity of the condition and whether the alert, the, the interaction is severe enough to warrant an immediate action or whether it's something the pharmacist really can take care of on the back end. The next one was interesting where they deployed a, a score-based drug disease alert uh, tool. They, they had just a subset based on some really um, curated clinical content and they were able to decrease monthly alerts from 32,000 a month down to about 1,100 a month and the acceptance rate on those alerts is between 20 and 30 percent and that's what I really wanted to highlight just on this piece that's a pretty high acceptance rate I'm seeing acceptance rates closer to 5 percent maybe 10 percent uh, on, on really valuable ones so if you can get acceptance rates on a medication alert to 20 to 30 percent, I really think you're delivering high value alerts. It's a target to shoot for. We should now, at least as CMIOs know, some people are out there doing that 20 to 30 percent, and if you're not getting to that acceptance rate, why? Is it that you're too many alerts, the alerts aren't designed well, you're targeting to not targeting the alerts right, things to think about. But I thought it was great to get that benchmarking data. Uh, there was another study they examined the availability and use of structured override reasons for drug-drug interaction alerts. And we've all seen these. They had categories that include, will monitor or take precautions, 
not clinically significant or benefit outweighs risk. And among the implications of the study was that they need to make the alerts actionable. Again, trying to give us feedback as informaticists, what can we do to reduce the firing of alerts that are not clinically significant? I think that's really valuable information. If your end users are willing to engage with you and give you that feedback, it's wonderful to use it. What I find more often than not is that that data never gets looked at. Doctors are clicking on the, the overrides. They will put in comments. No one ever looks at it, and eventually they get tired. Or occasionally, you'll if you do happen to check, you might see some nasty messages that are written in there. So uh, caution before you go in. The next study was really interesting. It was a study by Monson and colleagues, and was to determine if medication cost transparency alerts provided at the time of prescribing would lead ambulatory prescribers to reduce their use of high-cost medications. Prescribers in a randomly assigned intervention arm received a computerized alert whenever they ordered a medication from a high-cost class for which a lower-cost, equally effective, and safe alternative was available. Prescribing volume for the high-cost medications overall decreased by 32%, and they have a p-value there with a whole bunch of zeros before it, highly significant. And that was as compared to the 24-week baseline period, supporting the efficacy of the strategy in a single health system. So I think they're smart to point out that that's just in one place. But I anticipate we'll see more of this as we jump more into value-based care. And if you're already in value-based care, I'm sure you are either purchasing clinical decision support tools that help with high-cost medications or are building them yourself. I think having to maintain that database would be rather painful. I'd much, I think this is one of those things I'd rather buy if it can be done well. The final conclusion of this, this was the intro article to the journal, was that despite decades of research and integration of medication management functions into commercial EHRs, there remains a need for biomedical informatics research to decrease alert fatigue and provide CDS to prescribers and others that matches their needs and supports the safety and value of the medication management process. Thank you. Absolutely. Well stated. We all know that as uh, CMIOs. Next article I want to talk about is titled A Network Model of Activities in Primary Care Consultations. And I'll just paraphrase this one. I won't read you any direct quotes from it, other than that the authors were looking to see how the flow of information gathering is done in an office visit. And they followed a bunch of primary care providers around, I believe this was in Australia, but it's not a linear model of activities. I can see a linear model occurring in something like orthopedics, dermatology, or even the emergency room, where you're focused, you're going to be collecting information on usually one condition at a time, and then moving on. Whereas in primary care, the authors found that it's all over the map. And that's intuitively feels right. If you've ever practiced primary care, you'll know that one minute you'll be talking about insulin for their diabetes, and then you'll move on to their mother's cat that has insulin-dependent diabetes, and then you'll move on to their osteoarthritis of the knee, and that's why they can't exercise. And then you'll loop back and start talking about their diabetes again. And the reason why I'm highlighting this 
is because if you remember from a few weeks ago, Dr. Topol came on the show and was talking about the need for artificial intelligence and ambient uh, natural language processing where you'll just be speaking to a device that's like Alexa that sits in a corner and all of a sudden your notes are done at the end of the visit. And that's great, but one of the challenges for these developers is to handle this non-linear flow of information. Because if you're looking at your note, you're not going to want the diabetes information in the example I just gave to be scattered into two different parts of the HPI. You're going to want that to be one unified discussion around diabetes. And you certainly don't want the mother's cat having diabetes and getting insulin to be in that note. That's the social stuff that we tend to cover that needs to, needs to be pried out as to what's important social information versus what's just building that relationship and rapport. So you're going to start seeing these companies uh, coming out. In fact, there was an article, this came off of PR Newswire, uh, an article called, Ro there's a company called Robin Health, excuse me, Robin Healthcare, and that they just raised $15 million to continue their development of software that does just what we talked about, which is to include artificial intelligence in an ambient setting to extract your voice and the patient's voice and at the end of the visit your note is done for you. So as you're testing these things look for the ability to pull together information in a cohesive manner in those notes despite the nonlinear flow of the uh, of the visit. And I think you'll see that these systems roll out to places other than primary care. I also see hospital medicine could be very challenging in this regard. I see the medicine subspecialties, rheumatology, nephrology would all also suffer from some of these nonlinear issues. I now want to turn to an article out of Healthcare IT News. This one was published on September 20th, 2019 by Bill Sawicki. Pop Health IT helps partners in recovery reduce psychiatric hospital admissions by 50%. So Partners in Recovery is based out of Phoenix and they're an outpatient behavioral health organization and they were able to reduce ER spending from $2,200 per patient per month to just under eight, to about $875 per month. And it's interesting how they did this. Um, one of the things that they recognized, this is a quote here from the article, a large portion of its patients had undiagnosed and untreated chronic medical conditions including hypertension, respiratory illnesses, diabetes, heart disease, obesity, and that these were the factors contributing to significant overutilization of the emergency department in hospitals with some patients visiting the emergency department 70 or more times per year. This is not surprising to those of us who have been involved in population health. We know our psychiatric patients will use the emergency department for their medical needs and that it is very difficult to try to change that behavior. But what they did is they used a data aggregation tool and they were able to bring together disparate sources and put together a picture that helped them identify the highest risk patients. And they had some predictive analytic capabilities which would help them identify which patients were more likely to use the emergency department. And then they put in place some interventions. And the intervention, I think, is what was so important. What they did is they put primary care in the psychiatrist's office. And I haven't seen a lot of that. I see it going the other way. I see primary care providers trying to pull in social workers or 
psychologists or therapists into their offices to meet the social needs. This flipped the model around. And I think that's one of the things that they found it found so valuable is that patients were willing to make one visit to get their both primary care and psychiatric needs taken care of, but they really don't always make separate visits very well. They were looking at about 115 patients, so not a huge study, but really interesting that they were able to have such, a, uh, such an intervention. They developed a 14-step high-risk functional analysis and treatment planning protocol rooted in multidisciplinary and multi-stakeholder communication and collaboration that resulted in improved engagement among patients. Partners reduced its psychiatric hospital admissions by 50%, saving $119,000 in the emergency department due to the plan. A total cost savings of $375,000 among the high-risk panel over 12 months. That's really, really good work. Why do I bring this article before CMIOs? Because the data aggregation is just one piece of it, and that is an IT function. But the operational plan, which is what I think is so critical and sometimes missing from our initiatives, that's what really made this a success. So as CMIOs get involved in these projects, be thinking about that operational plan and it sounds like they had a really detailed multi-point plan here to go through and that's probably what it takes to be effective in population health. So next article I read also came out of, this one came out of Jamia. It's, I think it came back from July, but I saw it in the October issue. And it's the six habits of highly successful health information technology, powerful strategies for design and implementation. And I'll highlight a few of the points of the article but this is one that you really should go and read. It should be like mandatory reading for everyone involved in health IT. So the authors, they highlight six key features for health IT software. Where one is put the patient first. That one's pretty self-explanatory. Number two, assemble a team with the right skills. Innovation is an interdisciplinary team effort. It requires diversity and expertise and perspective. Number three, relentlessly ask why. Ask why is it done this way and could it be better? Number four, keep it simple. Leverage the science of human factors to support good design. Consider user abilities and limits for visual perception, working memory, and motor skill. Number five is be Darwinian. Continue iterative improvements throughout the health IT lifecycle. Test and retain only the best features at every stage. And number six is don't lose the forest for the trees. Putting patient care first requires safe design. You need to assess for unintended consequences and safety threats as you're designing. I love that article. It is really important stuff, both for us as when we're doing physician builder activities and when we're providing feedback to vendors about their products and helping to participate in the design of these products over the future. We want a better experience. We need to be involved in the design of that, and that's a key role for CMIOs. Next article, oh, this one also came out of Jamia, Electronic Health Record Systems and Hospital Clinical Performance, a study of nationwide hospital data. A total of 1,246 hospitals contributed 8,222 hospital years. Compared to hospitals without EHRs, hospital with EHRs had significant improvement 
over time on five out of 11 process measures. There were no substantial differences in readmission or mortality rates. Conclusion, in this national study of hospitals with modern EHRs, EHR use was associated with better process of care measure performance, but did not improve condition-specific readmission or mortality rates regardless of duration of EHR use, vendor choice, or meaningful use status. Why do I highlight this one? You're going to hear coming up, I've got an interview with the consulting company, uh, analytics company, they're known as Class K-L-A-S, and they are famous for doing the uh, their Arch Collaborative and the studies of user satisfaction with the EHR. And this one's coming up within the next two weeks. I think you'll really enjoy it. One of the things that Class has been noticing is that doctors don't feel the EHR is adding quality that the value isn't there from a quality standpoint. And this article kind of supports what we are feeling. And so I really would love it if someone would reach out and write to me, contact me on LinkedIn, come on the show and have a conversation with me about why is this the case? Why is quality not improving? Why are the doctors not feeling quality improving with these tools? And you can't just come on and bash the EHR. I want you to discuss with me the real underlying reason as to why quality isn't driving the initiatives. So I'll wait to hear from you guys on that. We'll have a show on it. Look forward to our discussion with uh, Taylor Davis from class. I think you're really going to like that one, talking about all the different drivers of satisfaction with the EHR. Let's cover another article. Role of Provider Encouragement on Patient Engagement via Online Portals. This article I think is a little bit older, but I just ran across it, and it happens to be doing to deal with something that I'm dealing with now in, in my organization, so we're going to cover it. The study sought to examine whether provider encouragement is associated with improvements in engaging patients with their healthcare processes using online portals. The results women 60%, white participants 69%, and those with a college degree 49% were more likely to report receiving provider encouragement. I thought this was interesting because we know that provider encouragement is associated with, with patient engagement, but our providers don't always push the portals. As a matter of fact, in my experience, the providers tend to dislike the portals. They see them as more creating more work for them a streamlined way for patients to get access to them where they have to handle the work. And it doesn't have to be that way. So when a patient wants an answer from a doctor, they call the office and leave a message or speak with the nurse. The thought from the doctor is that the nurse will handle that issue and it never reaches them or their in-basket. And the same thing can happen with the use of these portals, but what happens is it's just so easy with a single click, I think, to just forward that message on to the provider, and now it's in the provider's in-basket for them to deal with. And this is a workflow issue, and I think providers will encourage the use of these portals more when we fix the workflow issues that exist around in-basket. We put in place some strategies where the nurse will save up a bunch of these in-basket messages and they take five minutes either, well, we did it three times a day, once in the morning session, once at lunch break, and once in the afternoon session. And, and they would just knock out four or five different, whether they're quick refills, quick questions, 
so that by the end of the day, the providers in Basket was not overwhelmed with some of these quick, easy things that the nurse can turn around. We found that the nurses were going home instead of having to get overtime, the doctors were getting out of their in-basket earlier, and they just felt like they were doing more meaningful work, putting their time and attention on the tougher things. So I really encourage that we get our providers to encourage the use of the in-basket, but that we fix the workflows that drive the discouragement. Next article, it's just a quick blurb here because it's still a developing situation, but there's a hospital, Campbell County Health, that is now out of service, uh, taken down by a ransomware attack, and not a lot of details as of the time of this recording. Uh, the hospital has not yet recovered. Uh, why do CMIOs need to know about this one? Because it's just a matter of time until your hospital gets on the headlines. The uh, Hopefully you're practicing your downtime routines and have those processes worked out and are hopefully helping to keep your physicians aware of uh, cybersecurity risks. So not too much more to say on that one, just be aware and yeah, that's still happening out there and these attacks continue to continue to take down whole facilities. Rather concerning. Last article. This one was published in JAMA Network Open and the title is Concordance Between Electronic Clinical Documentation and Physicians Observed Behavior, written on September 18th. And what they were trying to see is how closely does documentation in the electronic health record match the review of systems and physical examination performed by emergency physicians. And they were looking at residents. So they had nine emergency physician trainees and then 12 observers, and they looked at 180 patient encounters. And 38.5% of the review of systems and 53.2% of the physical examination systems documented in the electronic health record were corroborated by direct audiovisual or reviewed audio observation. So what it means is there's a disconnect between what we put in the chart and what we actually did. So they go on to discuss about why they think this is the case, and a lot of this is tied back to the CMS documentation requirements and coding. There has not been a lot of investigation to date to quantify the accuracy of physician documentation, the article goes on to say. However, in 2017, CMS reported that it was working to reform documentation rules and regulations, noting there may be unnecessary burden with these guidelines and that they are potentially outdated. We believe this is especially true for the requirements for the history and physical exam. I think this is an interesting article because it really calls us out as physicians in terms of our in terms of our ethics are we actually performing all the things we say we're performing that's in the chart and we know as CMIOs there's going to be copy and paste and there's going to be templates and there'll be errors that occur from that um, but how much of this is driven by the coding and the payment rules and be interesting to see when CMS if they ever do make these changes and if the commercial insurance companies follow suit, really, how much does our documentation change? I think it will be dramatic. I think it will be more accurate. I certainly hope so. 
And I think we'll wrap it up there for today. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. I've been your host, Mark Weissman. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at cmiopodcast at gmail.com. Send me your feedback, your guests, your ideas for shows, or just look to connect. I look forward to bringing you our next episode.